Hey there, it's me, Jesse Tyler Ferguson, that redheaded actor from Modern Family. I have a podcast. It's combining a couple of my favorite things, talking and food. Please join me as I dine with the biggest names in entertainment, people like Julie Bowen, Kristen Bell, Fred Armisen, and so many more. It's called Dinners on Me, and you're invited. Am I saying a chocolate souffle is going to get me to reveal all of my secrets? Yeah, I am. Listen now, wherever you get your podcasts. Election Day 2020 is behind us, but the presidential election is far from over. Because of increased vote by mail and early voting, vote counts are taking longer than usual this year. And the race is tight, very tight. The winner of the 270 electoral votes needed to win the presidency is coming down to vote counts with very thin margins in just a handful of battleground states. While counts are still trickling in, President Trump has repeatedly made false claims of election fraud, declared victory in states where votes are still being counted, falsely tweeted that any votes coming in after Election Day won't be counted, and he's pledged to get the courts to determine the election outcome. The Trump campaign's legal team has launched efforts in the courts. His team has started a legal blitz, filing suits in Pennsylvania, Michigan, and Georgia, and requesting a recount in Wisconsin. So what do each of these legal moves actually do? Will these suits stop ongoing vote counts? Can they overturn a state's results? Are they likely to ultimately affect the outcome of this presidential race? And what other potential ways to contest the race does the president have as the rest of this election unfolds? This is Can He Do That, a podcast that explores the powers and limitations of the American presidency. I'm Allison Michaels. The close margins in key states have really raised the stakes for litigation over which ballots will count. So I wanted to understand how the Trump campaign's aggressive legal approach could actually affect the outcome of the election. To understand this, I turned to Edward Foley, an election law expert and a law professor at The Ohio State University. Early Wednesday morning, President Trump and his campaign falsely declared victory, despite results still being counted. His campaign manager also falsely declared victory in Pennsylvania. Trump tweeted that he hereby won several states that hadn't yet been called or had been called for Biden. A candidate can't merely claim victory and therefore win. So can you walk us through how a winner is determined? After voting has ended, how do states officially determine the winner of a presidential contest? So it's a multi-step process. It does require patience. We've come to expect the networks to call the races on election night or as soon as they can and that that would give us an answer. But in fact, the answer comes from government, from law. And it varies state to state because our electoral college system is state-based. So there's different dates in different states. There's some common themes, if you will. It usually takes about two or three weeks to have an official certification of what's called the canvassing of the returns. So what happens is after you have this preliminary count of votes, usually most of it's on election night, but as we see this year, some of it's in the next day or so, that has to be verified and double-checked for accuracy because we want accurate results. So the certification of the canvas is that verification process. And it will include things like provisional ballots, which are a safety net for voters who run into trouble at the polling places. If they show up and are eligible to vote or that that's what they think and the poll worker doesn't see them in the books, 
they can cast a provisional ballot. And if it turns out that the voter was correct, that ballot will count as any other valid ballot would. But that takes a little bit of time also to do that verification. So again, in about two or three weeks after election day, that's when the local boards of elections will do their certifications and they'll submit that to the Secretary of State for a statewide tally of a race like a presidential race or a governor's race, anything that's a statewide race. And for a presidential election, that statewide result is what is used as the basis for appointing the electors, the members of the Electoral College from each state. So when a candidate claims victory or even concedes or even projections from news organizations, none of that is an official certification of the vote. We have to actually get to that step, which happens, as you said, several weeks after Election Day. That's exactly right. And just as a candidate's own self-declaration of victory has no legal status, the flip side is also true. A concession of defeat has no legal status. But it is also fair to point out in our political culture as it's developed, it's the concession speech by a candidate that can happen before the certification that as a practical matter sometimes gives closure or usually gives closure because what will happen often is the networks will make their projection. And if the losing candidate is willing to rely on those projections and say, okay, I acknowledge my opponent is going to be the winner, even if that won't happen officially for a couple of weeks, that concession speech is an important signal. Again, no legal status, but functionally useful. In that respect, in my mind, I differ a little bit between the concession speech and its role versus these self-declaration of victories, which are more like campaign statements, I think. Let's look at some of the challenges the Trump campaign is now mounting. He's essentially trying to halt vote counting in Pennsylvania and in Michigan. He's challenging some of the handling of ballots in Georgia. He's seeking a recount in Wisconsin, a whole bunch of lawsuits. So let's start with Wisconsin. The AP and and most news organizations called the state for Joe Biden on Wednesday. But the Trump campaign said that they will request a recount. How does the recount process work in Wisconsin? and, And why is the Trump campaign specifically able to request one in that state? Recounts are part of the feature of the system that is state-by-state based, so there is some variation from state to state in terms of the technical details and rules. It's another aspect of the process like canvassing that I mentioned that has some general common themes that are worth identifying. Usually in in the area of recounts, we sometimes distinguish between candidate-requested recounts and automatic recounts. Again, different states do it a little bit differently. There's usually a threshold in a state that has an automatic recount. It might be a half a percent or a quarter percent. That'll trigger an automatic recount. Other states have candidate-requested recounts, and they have to pay for them. Again, the rules vary a little bit. But as I understand what we're looking at for Wisconsin is a candidate-requested recount on the part of the Trump campaign that would occur after the certification of the canvas. And there's been an announcement that that would be the intent that would come upon certification. And recounts are a good thing. I mean, whether they're requested by a candidate or automatic, recounts are a part of the process to verify the accuracy of results. And we want accurate results. It, again, slows the process down. So it does require some more patience. But we should be aware that states have recount laws and they are used to good purpose. But why is the Trump campaign focusing on Wisconsin specifically when there are so many states right now still with slim margins? I suspect that they're looking at all their options. Wisconsin is a state that they're behind in, for one thing. There are a couple of states that they're still ahead in, at least at the moment that we're talking. And so 
it would be odd for them to be requesting a recount when they're technically ahead, even if they might fall behind. So we could see more requests, you know, as the hours and days unfold. A recount is a procedure that will review the ballots no matter what, whether they're identified problems or not. In some ways, a recount is a way just, again, to double-check the accuracy, even if it's going to be fully accurate. Whereas lawsuits, you really can only file a lawsuit if you see a problem and have something to complain about. So I have not seen, with respect to Wisconsin or really any other state, serious problems of the kind that existed in Florida in 2000, these butterfly ballots or hanging chads or so forth. And so if a candidate's behind in a state like Wisconsin, but it's relatively close, although 20,000 votes, which is where, as the last time I looked, that is close on a statewide basis, but you know, probably not close enough to flip the result in a recount. But nonetheless, if you're behind, you look at your options and the best option in a state where you can't identify problems would be, all right, well, we might as well ask for a recount. And historically, how often do recounts change the result of the election? Does that happen very often, either at the presidential level or at other levels? No, it's rare, particularly in statewide races. Occasionally, you can have a recount in a local city council race or mayor's race. That Those are more likely to potentially be affected by a recount. It, this is partly sort of the law of numbers, and I'm not a math <laughs> uh, expert, but what I understand is that, you know, whenever you get to large numbers, it, it becomes very hard to change the result. And the rule of thumb in the recount world is that any result that's above a thousand is usually very difficult to overturn in a recount. Below a thousand, you kind of have a fighting chance. Uh, above a thousand, it's very difficult. For what it's worth, I think we're all trying to become math majors in real time here. <laughs> so so let's move on to Michigan and Pennsylvania. The Trump campaign filed lawsuits to stop counting ballots, claiming that Republican observers didn't have proper access. So first of all, has there been evidence of limited access? What are they responding to with these suits? Yeah, this is a little bit unclear to me. You know, there's a lot going on. And of course, there's, you know, allegations and counter allegations. I will say this. I do think as a general proposition, transparency is a very important element of the vote counting process. It's necessary for the candidates, the parties, the voters, the public, everybody to believe that the vote counting is done with integrity. So eyes on the system is a good thing. And in fact, we've seen examples of where in the past where there's been insufficient transparency and that has caused problems. So some listeners may have heard of the infamous Brooks Brothers riot in Florida in 2000. That was precipitated in part because the recount in Miami-Dade that year was moved behind closed doors and in a procedure that had significantly less transparency. Now, I'm not saying a riot or the protest of that nature was the proper response, but it is concerning when things are being put behind closed doors. Florida, again, in 2018, in Broward County, the administrators there attempted to do the vote counting without sufficient transparency. The Republicans went to court and won some litigation that opened up the process. So now focusing on this year, again, there are rules in place to allow for a certain amount of transparency. Who's a registered observer? The parties and the candidates can designate people to be there. And of course, in this year, it's particularly challenging because of COVID. In a room that you can have lots and lots of uh, lawyers looking over the shoulders of the folks doing the canvassing, you can't do that with social distancing. And so what we may be seeing is a little bit of adjustment of exactly how Pennsylvania and Michigan are going to apply the existing laws 
in the practical circumstances of this year. So I think there are two values on the table that are really important. One is the transparency value that we've talked about. The other is the rule of law value. You have to kind of follow the laws as they exist. And so if the state officials are enforcing the rules properly, that may have a limited amount of transparency, not as much as somebody might want. Not everybody can appear at the location and say, hey, I want to observe. I will say this, if I might, Minnesota in 2008, for the U.S. Senate recount, this was Al Franken as the challenger and Norm Coleman as the incumbent. They, to great effect, utilized the internet and cameras to allow everybody at home to look at each and every ballot as it was being evaluated. And so you could kind of follow along at home and think, well, that ballot should get counted or shouldn't get counted. And that gave the public a lot of confidence that the process was going well. And Philadelphia was doing some version of this. As I saw it, there was a camera that you could look at, you know, Tuesday night, Wednesday, and follow the canvassing process. So I applaud the efforts that are trying to make it as transparent as, as possible. I'm Alex Schwartz. I'm Nomi Fry. I'm Vincent Cunningham, and this is Critics at Large, a New Yorker podcast for the culturally curious. Each week, we're going to talk about a big idea that's showing up across the cultural landscape, and we'll trace it through all the mediums we love. Books, movies, television, music, art. And I always want to talk about celebrity gossip, too. Of course. We hope you'll join us for new episodes each Thursday. Follow Critics at Large today, wherever you get podcasts. Can you explain to me, the Trump campaign is now suing for sort of more transparency, as we've just talked about. But what actually happens when these suits are filed? Does it stop the counting in real time? Is it sort of a retroactive thing? Can it change things going forward? What does it actually mean for these results coming in in Michigan and Pennsylvania? Yeah, that's an important point. No, well, until a judge issues an order, the counting will continue. And my understanding is the counting is still continuing if there were to be a, a temporary restraining order, that's a technical legal term, it would only be temporary until such time as the adequate transparency measures were put into place. It, it, it certainly should not stop the counting of ballots, period. I mean, it, it's absolutely essential that all valid votes get counted in this election in all of the states and that that happened within the timeframes that exist, both the local certification deadlines that we've been talking about, and there are some federal law deadlines that are important for the whole electoral college process. So there is a little bit of a delay to make sure that there's adequate transparency. That's one thing, but there shouldn't be excessive delay. And it's incumbent upon any court that would be involved to make sure that any temporary order did not jeopardize the ability to ultimately get all the valid votes counted on time. But these lawsuits can't, let's say, invalidate certain groups of votes from Pennsylvania or Michigan? Certainly not the transparency claims. There is a slice of ballots in Pennsylvania that has been litigated even before Election Day. Pennsylvania has been a scene of disputes over the deadline for when mailed ballots, absentee ballots, must get returned to local officials. The statutes, the law and the books enacted by the legislature, originally had it as 8 p.m. on Election Day. So the voters would have to get their ballots back, whether it was by the post office or by drop boxes or whatever. It had to be there on Election Day. The Pennsylvania Supreme Court basically relaxed that deadline, created a three-day extension, partly because of the pandemic, partly because of the problems with the post office, and said as long as ballots were postmarked on Election Day or there wasn't any reason to think that they weren't cast on Election Day, 
they could arrive up to three days later and still be eligible to be counted. That went up to the U.S. Supreme Court with a lot of procedural skirmishing. It's still, the basic case is still at the U.S. Supreme Court with no decision yet on the merits. But the maneuvering basically allowed the Pennsylvania Supreme Court's ruling to stay in effect. And that's still in effect as of this moment, meaning that the law in Pennsylvania does allow for these ballots to arrive over that three-day period and be eligible to be counted. But the Trump campaign is fighting that. Correct. And it is possible that the U.S. Supreme Court could get back involved in that. My best judgment of this issue is that even if the legal theory that the Trump campaign is relying upon, I don't think the U.S. Supreme Court is going to invalidate those votes because the voters didn't do anything wrong. And if they were taking advantage of the three-day extension that had been given to them by their local courts, they were innocent in that respect. And there is a principle of constitutional law under the Due Process Clause that you don't change the rules for counting votes after they're cast. And the rule that was in effect for those voters was the three-day extension. And so it, it would be kind of a game of gotcha, if you will, to take that right away from them. And there's a reliance interest involved, and the reliance is an important concept in, in law generally, and, and specifically in election law. So again, there may be some legal fighting. The other point to say about this is that it's very unclear at this point that the outcome in Pennsylvania is going to depend on those ballots. Now, each and every one of those voters obviously cares about their own ballot, but in terms of who wins Pennsylvania, the margin at the end, one way or the other, may be outside the so-called margin of litigation over that slice of votes in particular. Is this the only pending case that could reach the Supreme Court? Are there other suits that might find themselves at SCOTUS in this process, other election-related suits? Yeah, well, there's a suit out of North Carolina that is similar involving a ballot deadline extension that was six days in North Carolina instead of three in, in Pennsylvania, but structurally pretty similar. It doesn't have a petition for certiorari pending at the moment, the way Pennsylvania does. I know I'm getting into a little legal jargon there. <laughs> I admit I don't know what that means. Yeah, that's yeah, just a fancy Latin term for basically when a case is getting ready to be considered on the merits at the U.S. Supreme Court, sometimes called a cert petition for, for short. And there is one in the Pennsylvania case that's there at the U.S. Supreme Court, but not yet one in North Carolina, at least as my last look. But, but that is a case that could get back, you know, in, a, in that kind of procedural posture, but similar issue. I think it is at least theoretically possible for the U.S. Supreme Court to get involved in almost anything that might arise. I mean, it has to be a federal question. The U.S. Supreme Court doesn't decide issues of state law. And so a lot of what we're seeing already over the last 48 hours have been claims based on state law. But one of the big picture issues on the table at the moment is whether or not there's the capacity to basically convert an issue of state law into an issue of federal law under the U.S. Constitution that's an issue in the Pennsylvania case and in the North Carolina case. It's a leftover issue from the Bush versus Gore case 20 years ago where there was a concurring opinion by Chief Justice Rehnquist back then that signaled this possibility. The majority in the U.S. Supreme Court went a different route, but this idea has resurfaced. Again, it may not affect any individual voter or ballot this year, but it could affect the landscape 
of election law and litigation for years to come if the court embraces this particular legal theory. When Trump talks about sending votes to the Supreme Court for the Supreme Court to decide, we don't see that as a realistic possibility happening right now. There's no realistic avenue for the Supreme Court to decide the will of the people right now. Absolutely not. As I understood what President Trump was trying to say was that somehow he could simply, you know, go to the Supreme Court and say, stop counting all these votes. That can't happen. These are valid votes. They, their validity exists pursuant to state law and under state law, they must be counted. Many of these ballots, by the way, were piling up for weeks because of state rules that wouldn't allow them to be processed in advance of election day. This is why in Pennsylvania and in Michigan and Wisconsin, it, it's taken a little bit longer than some other states. They're still valid votes. They were ready and waiting to be counted, but just state law said you couldn't start the process. And the process has to be completed, whether it could be completed Tuesday night, Wednesday morning, Thursday. You just have to go through the entire pile until you're finished the pile. And we were only partway through the pile on Tuesday night. And in some states, we're still only partway through. We're further along, but not complete. So that has to be completed. And to the extent that President Trump was trying to stop that process and stop midway through the pile, that was never going to happen in any court and certainly not in the U.S. Supreme Court. So we've talked about suits that existed sort of before Election Day, and we've talked about suits that have been brought by the Trump campaign since Election Day. Is the strategy here that together all of these can bring enough actual vote count changes that would result in an election victory for Trump? Is there strategy or is the hope that if all these suits land in favor of the Trump campaign, that it would actually affect the outcome of the election, that it would taken together change the ultimate result in some way? Yes, yeah, so I'm speculating a little bit because as a professor, I'm an independent observer of the process and I'm not in touch with either of the campaigns. But just based on what exists on the public record, what I can say is if you're behind in a high stakes election, you do everything you can as a candidate to try to change the, the terrain because you're behind. And you, if you stay behind, you're going to lose. So we often see lawsuits and maneuvers of this nature filed and usually filed very quickly after election day because the clock really is ticking. And so many of these moves end up failing, but they're made because from the candidate's perspective, the only alternative is to concede defeat. And if they don't want to do that, they have to take some action. So just you know, because we're seeing this doesn't mean they're going to be successful. In fact, I tell my students, there's this old cliche, where there's smoke, there's fire. That cliche does not apply in the world of ballot counting litigation. <laughs> Where there's smoke, there's smoke, but there's not necessarily fire underneath. And I don't mean to cast aspersions on the lawyers, they're doing their job, but in a way their job is to kind of throw smoke over the process, to cast doubt on the result, because if you're behind, you do not want the public narrative to be that the other candidate is won. So litigation is a way to kind of try to control not just the vote counting process itself, but also the public narrative about the vote counting process and to just say that, well, it's uncertain and we've got lawsuits and we have to wait for these lawsuits to complete. Same thing with a recount, right? You may not think you're going to prevail in a recount when you're behind by 20,000 votes, but if you don't ask for a recount, you're definitely going to be behind. And so some of this is something of a delay tactic, if you will. It can't really change the state laws for when things have to happen. But in terms of the public narrative, Maybe you delay the inevitability of the public's belief as to what the answer is. 
Along those lines, is there anything else besides these legal challenges that they've already launched on that the Trump camp could be doing? Are there other ways that they could be contesting the election? I don't want to get too far ahead of ourselves here because as we're talking on Thursday morning, in some ways this election year feels like the functional equivalent of what in a normal year would still be 10 p.m. on Tuesday night, right? I mean, we're still in that process of just completing the preliminary count. Yes, we are seeing lawsuits, but it's still early on. Two important points. The first point is that we have an expectation, as we should, that the counting of votes is based on legal rules and procedures. State law and federal law, to some extent, they create the legal parameters for how we know that a vote is valid, and therefore we count the votes that are valid. And so when we get to the meeting of the Electoral College on Monday, December 14th, it should be our expectation that the electors are there because they've been appointed based on the popular vote in each state. And the popular vote was determined according to these rules and procedures in law for how to do that. And so the legal process should be allowed to run its course and achieve its answer, again, according to the rules, right? I mean, the World Series should be played according to the rules of baseball. You don't change the rules of baseball in the middle of the World Series. And so we should have the ex- expect that the process will go forward. In any competitive environment, one team doesn't want to lose and you want to win the World Series, but both teams can't win. And an election is like that. And of course, the stakes are very high, but the process needs to go forward and it will achieve a resolution according to law. And our expectation should be that the Electoral College ends up being based on those legal rules. Given our system, there is at least a theoretical chance, whether we like it or not, that kind of politics could take over And so that the answer on December 14th about what happens in a state isn't solely based on law and what we've been talking about, but that somehow politics has gotten involved and either is competing against the legal procedure or trying to overtake the legal procedure. I don't anticipate that that will happen. Again, if you adopt a rule perspective, it shouldn't happen. If you adopt the perspective that elections should be held for the sake of the voters, to determine what the voters want. That shouldn't happen because, again, it's the legal rules that are determining the will of the voters. It would be politicians kind of coming in to try to repudiate that, which would be a bad sign if you think the voters should prevail. But politics is politics, and history shows us that there's at least one example where kind of a presidential election got engulfed in politics even much more than Bush versus Gore. Bush versus Gore was ultimately settled as a legal proposition in the courts, and Al Gore accepted that. If you go back to 1876, when none of us were alive, but looking at the history books, that was a scenario where the politics kind of overtook the process. So it's not unprecedented that politics could overtake this process. Yes. But again, if we're trying to understand the system and be aware of what might happen, I think you have to acknowledge that that there is that risk. I evaluate the risk as low. And part of that is based, frankly, over the last 24 hours, we've seen members of the U.S. Senate, while not committing themselves to anything in particular, sending signals that votes should be counted and the will of the voters should be respected. And so that's a political signal from sitting U.S. senators saying that they want the legal process to do its job and run its course. That's at least some suggestion that 
politics isn't going to attempt to repudiate the legal process. Over this past week, many Americans have witnessed things they've never really seen before, a slower counting process than we're used to. We're now awaiting news from lawsuits. It looks sort of like messy democracy at work. What lessons do you think we should draw from this election? That our system is working, it's doing its job, or that it's weakening, or that we need new safeguards? What should really the takeaways be from the process we've seen unfold this week? Yeah, very important question. I think in some respects, the mechanics of the process is working surprisingly well, given the COVID pandemic and the post office. I mean, we were really worried during the primary elections back in June and so forth that we would have a hard time this November just running the election. And it does seem to have gone smoother than many of us feared. I mean, there were long lines. It wasn't perfect. No election is perfect. But again, we aren't seeing hanging chads or butterfly ballots or where the system itself failed. So that is good. On the other hand, I do think we've seen an erosion of the norm of fair play, which worries me. In other words, democracy to work inevitably is going to be competitive with teams fighting vigorously to win. A one-party democracy is not a robust democracy. A healthy democracy has vibrant competition. But some of the statements that have been made over the course of this last year seem to be inconsistent with this basic idea that the that the game should be played fairly for the sake of the voters and instead distorting the rules or winning at all costs is somehow okay. That is not healthy long term. So I hope that when we get past this election and we think about the future, yes, there are some aspects of the technical procedures that do need uh, repair or improvement and we should make those changes. But I also hope we do some soul searching as a nation about our own commitment to the basic principles of democracy. And that means things like no voter suppression for in order to win, right? It's not a good idea to say that the way in which we're going to win election is to try to prevent voters from voting. That, that's inconsistent with the fundamental premise of the system. Same thing, there should be no effort to try to stop the counting of votes in order to prevail. The vote should be counted for the sake of the voters. So I hope we can have a recommitment to the basic values of fair play so that the voters get their choice because it's to be held for their benefit. Ned, thank you so much for your time. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Edward Foley is also a contributing columnist for Washington Post's opinion section. His writing there focuses on election law and administration. This has been another episode of Can He Do That? For updates on all the moving pieces in this wild election, visit WashingtonPost.com elections. And one last thing. Election Day has passed, but what we'll learn from this moment about the American people and the American story is still unfolding. That's why The Washington Post is bringing you an Amazon original podcast miniseries drawing on the experience and insight of The Post's reporting staff and experts to retell the moments that define the 2020 election. In this series called The Next Four Years, reporter Eugene Scott tells the story of how we got here and unpacks what the outcome of the election means for the future of our divided country. The Next Four Years from The Washington Post premieres Friday, November 6th exclusively on Amazon Music. Can He Do That is a team effort here at The Post. This episode was produced by Arjun Singh with local art from Loren Boglio and theme music by Ted Muldoon. If you're looking for a smoking gun, I can absolutely guarantee you, you will not find it. In October 2001, a series of letters filled with a deadly powder called anthrax were dropped into the U.S. mail system. 
What started as an unprecedented case turned into an unsettling mystery. Who sent these deadly letters and why? From Campside Media and Sony Music Entertainment, I'm Josh Dean, and this is Cover Up Season 4, The Anthrax Threat, available now.